welcome to Landscape Photography World, the podcast for everyone passionate about landscape photography. I'm Grant Swinburne and I'll be your host on this show talking to landscape photographers about their motivations, likes and dislikes. This time I'm talking to Taylor Stone about her photography journey and an exciting new project she started. Taylor is a PhD researcher and photographer based in Pensacola, Florida. After serving as a federal agent for the US military, Taylor broke from the traditional career path to pursue photography. As an Arctic specialist, Taylor has spent a significant amount of time exploring the northern region. Her summers in Greenland have inspired numerous academic research projects on topics like globalisation and indigenous identity, mass tourism and peripheral communities, and climate-induced human migration among Inuit populations. These themes are echoed in her photographic pursuits, which focus heavily on Arctic landscapes and other climate change-inspired projects to allow her to visually explore the real-life aspects of her academic subjects. To further this mission, in 22-23, Taylor is partnering with filmmaker Ashley Payne to produce a documentary about the modern changes of hunting culture in northern Greenland based on more than four years of academic research. Taylor's work is about more than photography. Her images merge science and art to highlight themes of transition and fragility and to emotionally connect viewers to places few will ever visit. Her hope is to raise awareness that climate-threatened landscapes are more than data points, charts and statistics. They're living places that deserve to be protected in their own right. In her role as an educator, Taylor considers it a priority to enhance awareness and appreciation of the natural world through speaking engagements and hands-on education. Her photography workshops focus on introducing others to these magical remote places and creating a deeper understanding of the environment while also learning new technical skills. Taylor is proud to be a pro with Munch Workshops who offer incredible and immersive photography experiences worldwide. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Taylor. Welcome to Landscape Photography World. How are you going? Hey, Grant. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm good. I'm enjoying my evening and I guess you're probably enjoying your coffee over there. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's about midday here at the moment, so uh, it's um, almost, almost time for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get into that after this, but um, yeah, now it's an absolute pleasure to have you on board. Uh, you know, you you've been on the radar for a little while, and a, a couple of guests have uh, mentioned you and suggested that I talk to you. So uh, I thought, um, you know, a good a time as any to uh, to, to get you going. Um, how about we start with what got you started in photography, and you know, a little bit about your your background. Sure, yeah. Um, so diving into photography was probably something I didn't intend to do when I got started, at least not professionally. I just, um, I actually think that I owe a lot of credit to a local camera club. It's something that I feel like um, a lot of professional photographers have a love-hate relationship with local camera clubs. You know, it's yep. the constant requests for speaking engagement or, or that kind of thing. They have low budgets, but for me, like that was how I got started. And I kind of owe everything to two little camera clubs in Virginia. Um, yeah, sure. When I started attending meetings before I even owned a camera. 
And wow, okay. Yeah, I didn't even own one. I just knew I loved photography and that I wanted to learn, but I didn't know how to learn and I didn't know what camera I needed. So I just started showing up every week and going to photo walks and uh, a couple of the people in the clubs loaned me their cameras and let me learn with theirs. And that, that's, that's how right. I got started. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of maybe I don't think the the local clubs get enough credit. And, you know, they really are the amazing proving ground for people to get started and collaborate with people and learn from different levels of experience to really build up. Uh, and be able to have a solid foundation to move forward. Yeah, sure, sure. So in joining the club, um, you know, what was it, I guess, or, or to, to prompt that prior to joining the club, what was it that <laughs> you felt about photography that made you, uh, made you want to join the club in the first place? Yeah, okay. So we're, we'll have to go back a little ways. Um, when I I was raised a little unconventionally, um, I grew up in South Louisiana. Uh -huh. We had like a, a house in the bayou, like wow. overlooking a swamp. I mean, it was just nature everywhere. And um, I was very lucky to have a stay at home mom who was so dedicated to educating me and my brother. Like, we went to school, we went home and being at home was like being at school. It was just yeah. education nonstop. Um, and part of that was that we weren't really allowed to watch cartoons. If we wanted to watch TV, it was Discovery Channel, Animal Planet and National Geographic. No education. So, yeah, yeah. So when I was like five and every other kid in school wants to be an astronaut or a fireman, I was telling people I wanted to be a National Geographic photographer, which then people look at you funny because you're five and like, who knows what that is. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's it was my role model. That's what I was watching on TV and it's what got me really excited. But I never, I never had a camera. <laughs> I know it's it's crazy it's like I had this childhood dream and I think like most people you let go of that dream as you mature because yeah. you know that when you're a kid and you want to be an astronaut it's not too long till you let go of that and you pick something a little bit more like conventional yeah. well, it's not that easy to be an astronaut either <laughs> yeah your academic advisors tell you oh that's probably not a good <laughs> not idea <laughs> The, the giant wet blanket of the universe tells you that your dreams aren't real. You should pick oh, yeah. something more reasonable. Well, there's, um, a, there's a lot of photographers that get that as well. You know, oh, it's you know, it's not a real job. It's you know, you can't yeah. make a living out of it. It's really hard, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I ended up um, you know following a pretty conventional path, but uh, I was in the military, uh, and when I got out of the military, I kind of decided that. It was time for me to explore this other thing. Like the passion never died for visual art. That was always there. And, but I had never tried to explore it in any way. So when I moved to Virginia, I joined the camera club. I bought my first camera. It wasn't about being a National Geographic photographer anymore. Cause it turns out that wasn't really my role model. My role model was just visual art. Yeah. That's what I wanted to create. And, um, you know, so I just started working to pursue that. It, I never thought I would do it professionally, not at first. Um, you know, I 
I kind of went about it. I, it wasn't reckless uh, the way I got started because it wasn't intended to happen the way that it happened. Um, but at first, you know, I was spending a lot of time traveling out West and I had people in the camera clubs that were saying, well, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. Um, so I ended up organizing some trips for, I mean, it was for myself, but also for the camera club. It was basically, I just like organized the logistics of it and people joined up. It was not profit. (laughs) Trust me. It was not, I wasn't making money. I didn't think I had anything to offer right i was still pretty new with photography and i thought that what i had to offer was getting people to a place they've never been but i wasn't trying to run a workshop because i didn't think that i had anything to offer in terms of education like what would they possibly want to know from me these people are they've been shooting for 20 years in this camera club like i didn't think that i could help them um just classic imposter syndrome and uh, I organized a trip and we went out and everyone had so much fun that I ended up having more people just continually ask to do stuff like that. And it kind of was like, okay, well, if that's the case, I have to be legit, right? You have to do all the business things. You have to get insurance. You have to get permits. Like you have to figure out how to make it all happen. Um, and through that process, I kind of developed the confidence that it would take to turn it into a full-time job. Oh. It just, it's confidence building. You know, I, I didn't really have a mentor. I kind of just went for it and figured it out. And at the start, they weren't intended as workshops because I wasn't ready to teach. Um, but it eventually evolved as I became more confident in working with other people and feeling like I actually did have something of value to bring to the table. Oh, that's great. So what, when you're running a workshop, what's the most important thing that, you know, is in creating that atmosphere that's, you know, going to help people be creative in, in the, in the field? I think. For me, what I've I've learned over time is that every group is different. The people join for different reasons. People have different skill levels. So you always have a very diverse group. And success really starts with being able to understand how to manage group dynamics. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't matter how well you know photography. If you don't know how to manage a group of people who have very diverse interests, you are set up for failure from the beginning. Yeah, definitely. I think what I usually do is I really focus on creating a teamwork environment and that starts when, right when people sign up with me, you yep. know, they get a phone call. There's lots of emails. I put people in group chats and I build up a teamwork community. Mm-hmm. I continually say the phrase teamwork over and over and over again yep. <laughs> so that they know that this is like what we're it, doing. This is not all about you. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to be a team um and when people work together as a team they're able to be more creative because they they're helping each other and they're building each other up and um you know i can instruct and teach but it's a much better experience overall if people work together to find cool things that interest them or you know collaborate on techniques or ideas i love seeing that and i try and create an environment where people feel like they are actually part of a team and yeah, no, that's great do you find yourself um I, I guess drawing on some of your military background in in that 
you know, not ordering people around or anything <laughs> like that, but, you know, I guess that, that organisation and that teamwork. That yeah. Very, well, know. you know, it's funny because I don't know how much of that I can really attribute to the military because I'm just that way. I always have yeah. been. I'm hyper-organised, very, like, structured person, like, I'm very organized. I always have been. And so being organized is so essential because it's not even while you're physically at a location, it's managing the paperwork, managing the invoicing, all the business logistics that create this whole life that you're trying to build. You know, it's held together by very logical, dry, mundane steps. And if you skip them, you're you're really screwed. Definitely. (laughs) So being organized pays off. How do you trade that off against the creativity and the creative side of the, uh, the, the business, I guess? Oh, my gosh. I, I have to remind myself to have fun sometimes. Yep. <laughs> yeah, because I can be very, um, especially when I'm working at home, more so than when I'm in the field. When I'm at home, oh, my gosh, I live somewhere beautiful. I live right by the beach. And, you know, I could walk to the beach if I wanted to. and I'll go a week, two weeks without going to the beach because I'm working 14 hour days in front of a computer. And it's very hard for me to remember that I need to stop and go see sunset or something like that to get that creative, you know, get back in touch with that part of my brain because otherwise you get burned out. And I'm not the person to give advice on that because I'm constantly failing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I fail at that almost every day. I was very proud of myself because yesterday I caught sunset for the first time in three weeks. And nice. that was really good, you know, and that's kind of pitiful to say. I mean, I'm a photographer. I live somewhere beautiful and I'm not going to catch sunset. But it's because I'm so driven and hyper focused that when I'm in work mode, that's it. Like nothing else exists around me. And sometimes work mode means my computer. Sometimes it doesn't mean my camera. Yep. Okay. So when you're shooting, I guess, or when you're when you're organising your uh, your trips, etc., are you thinking about all the travel logistics as well as the you know? Because um, I'd imagine that you've got people from all over the place wanting to join some of your workshops. How do how how do you arrange that? Do you let people organise their own travel to the set location you meet up and then you okay so it depends um if i'm organizing something international when okay so i have to make a point here which is that i am transitioning right now from running my own workshops to now being a pro on the mutual workshops team yeah okay so when i talk about organizing it for myself i'm talking about when i was running my own independent workshops and i was doing logistics for that so um this will be the last year that I have my own workshops going forward. It will all be under the mute workshops umbrella. Um, But when I was doing my own, I recommend certain flights for international things. I, during COVID, you have to handle all the COVID protocols, make sure people get their paperwork done on time. I mean, it's, it's a beast Um, for workshops. There's different philosophies of whether or not the, a uh, person leading the workshop handles the hotels or vehicles. And I've always taken the approach that I handle it because it makes it logistically easier for me. 
but it's also less for the client to worry about. Yeah. In part, people sign up for workshops because they want to hand the reins off to someone else so they can truly enjoy their experience. So I, I take over that part so that they can just show up and have a good time. That's all I want them to do is have a good time um, and take great pictures. <laughs> but now that I'm working with mute workshops, I mean, I can't say enough good things about how amazing that is. Um, so shout out to them. A lot of that, that side of things. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. Um, I mean, I didn't know that they knew I was breathing on earth when they approached me. So I was shocked um, that they were interested in bringing me onto their team and very flattered. It's very humbling. Um, but they they handle everything. They have an amazing admin person, like shout out to Lori. She's great. Um, and now all the logistics are handled by the admin team mm. um, which is amazing because what does that mean for me i get to just show up and teach like i board my flight i show up i teach my clients we have an amazing time i go home it's beautiful like yeah, right. i didn't know it could be this good <laughs> so how far do you travel each year how far yeah um well <laughs> Uh, in 2021, I put 30,000 miles on my car. Wow. So that's a lot. Um, driving coast to coast quite a bit. Um, I, this 2022, this year, I will be away from home all but eight weeks. Wow. I'm only spending eight weeks at home and I just did three of them. So, um, I'm about to be gone. I leave. February 21st and I won't go back home until I won't go back home for more than two days until the end of September. Wow. That's, that's a lot. It's, um, this is going to be my hardest year yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've had tough schedules like this in the past, but this year is because I have my own independent workshops that are wrapping up and also a full load with huge workshops and another huge project coming up. So it's just the meeting of all the storms. And so if I'm still standing at the end of the year, give me a pat on the back. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I, I can imagine what it's going to be like at the end of the year. You're going to breathe a sigh of relief, I think. To, to yeah, the, I yeah. hope I still have some hair. And I also hope that I still have friends and family that want to talk to me. Yeah, well, that, that, that's it. I guess that, that's that's another aspect is how do you how do you balance that sort of friends and family with uh, with that kind of workload? It's so hard. Um, you know, I think everyone probably has their own answer to that. So I can't speak universally, but sure. the struggle is real. You know, I mean, I I have grandparents who are not in great health. You know, and I'm, I want to spend as much time as possible with them. It's hard to make those choices and to balance between the career and chasing my dream and like being home with my family who needs me. Um, talk about relationships. Uh, that's hard. Mm. You know, I, I have a boyfriend who is wonderful. I'm grateful because we've been friends for about six years before we started dating. So he kind of knew what the deal was. Um, yeah before he signed up for it willingly. <laughs> so, um, and he travels with me quite a bit. So he he's nice. able to join me on the road for long periods of time and that makes it easier, but it's not easy by any means. 
it is it's balancing and i think for anyone who's looking to work full time in this space and keep a really high speed schedule where you're on the road a lot teaching you're going to have to be willing to make some sacrifices and i think you're going to find that some relationships just don't stand up to the test of it yeah yeah definitely i guess um you you mentioned your uh the project that you're working on um can you tell us a little bit about that and in particular about the the organization of it and how it's uh how it's actually going to be uh be funded and managed etc right yeah so we I, i'm working with a filmmaker her name's ashley payne so if anyone looks for her online her production company is called tracing thought so that's how you mm -hmm. find her um, she is amazing and very talented, so I'm excited to work with her. We are filming a documentary in Greenland, so it's actually pretty wild. Um, we are going, we, well, we got invited to live with a family in the northernmost continually inhabited place on Earth, which is crazy. Wow. And we're going to be living with them for two months and uh, documenting their life and the way that globalization, which includes climate change, has impacted their traditional practices. Mm -hmm. So um, to fund a project of this scale has been a monumental challenge, uh, especially during a pandemic. Yep. We've had an extremely hard time getting financial backers on board, especially for an international project lots of claims of budget constraints and that type of thing. So it's been- yeah, There's a lot of organizations that would normally fund these sorts of things that are just right. holding, yeah. You know. Yeah, it has been very hard. I mean, the number of pitches we've made, it has been like shouting into the void. So um, anyone else who's a professional creative probably knows that feeling of just pitch after pitch and just blank stares in the room. It's really uh, difficult. Um, so what we ended up doing, we have some money that's come from a variety of sources, but it's not enough to pay for our translator and to compensate the family who is hosting us because let's face it, I don't know how to go catch a seal. So they're going to be feeding us. Um, so we have to compensate them. <laughs> I might know how to catch a seal by the end of it. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but so we we're doing a Kickstarter. Um, the Kickstarter runs from February 15th until March 16th, and the Kickstarter campaign is this whole different animal. I didn't really know what it was about until we started trying to create this project, um, and I feel like not a lot of people actually know how Kickstarter works. So I can like I can break it down for you. Yeah, sure. uh, so, We've yeah, got yeah. <laughs> Kickstarter is all or nothing. So that means that if we don't actually hit our goal, we get zero dollars and all of the money is refunded back to the people who donated. So, I mean, there's a good reason that Kickstarter does that. And the reason is because if this is the amount of money we need to be successful, they don't want to halfway fund a failed project. Yeah, yeah. So that's great for the people who are donating because it means that if you donate and we successfully fund our project, like we have the budget that we need. So it increases our chances of success exponentially. So that's great, but it's also very scary if you're creating it. Yeah. I, 
I can't even explain to you the amount of time that has gone into trying to decide what the right number is. Because <laughs> you don't want to set it too high because you might not make it. But if you set not, it too not high. Not only that, whatever number you come up with, it won't be the right number. <laughs> it, it's it's so hard to know because if you set it too low, then maybe you're underselling the amount of support that you have. Maybe yeah, but it, it also it also means that you may not be able to do exactly what it is that you want to be able to do. Exactly. So it has been um, really difficult for us to settle on the right number. Many budget spreadsheets <laughs> have gone into trying to figure this out, um, and then just algorithm. Uh, there's an algorithm that runs Kickstarter, which I know all of us are very familiar with the uh, trials and tribulations of algorithms. So basically what that means is that Kickstarter looks at the amount of clicks and donations on a campaign to determine whether or not to prioritize your campaign in search results. Right. So that's how they decide whether or not anyone sees it. So then you have to create this huge campaign and get this whole coalition of people on board. So you're not just creating a Kickstarter campaign. You're, you're creating a bulletproof budget, you hope. Yep. You're coordinating dozens to hundreds of people and basically calling in every favor you know to get people to help promote it and spread the reach because that's the only way people find you. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, you're just kind of like hoping <laughs> that when the rubber meets the road, there's a lot of people who can see, consume your social media for free. As a photographer, we're constantly putting out pictures, videos, tutorials, blogs. We put out a lot of free education and people love to consume free education. And that's great. That's what we're doing it for, right? I, I want to share with yeah. the world. It's not all about money, I just wanna share. But sometimes you need money to get things done. Um, and it's it's hard sometimes to know like when the rubber meets the road, like who's gonna show up. So yeah. it's, it's an endeavor, I'll tell you. I mean, by the time this podcast comes out, we'll be in the, the home stretch. <laughs> so hopefully uh, if you check the Kickstarter from the podcast link, then you'll see that we're on track and uh, you know, well, hopefully we can get you uh, help get you over the line. So <laughs> yes, get me to that finish line. That's all we need. And you know, I just want to reiterate that like we made a decision early on with this project that we are donating all of our time to it. So Ashley and I, our time is unpaid. That includes the editing, the filmmaking. Like we. Wow. We are going to end up much poorer for making this project, but it's just something that we're so passionate about. So at the end of the day, we're just worried about making sure that the people who are supporting us on the ground are compensated with a fair wage because like, why would I show up to a community like this and not be willing to like put my own money where my mouth is yeah. and pay a fair yeah. wage to the people who are helping us. So definitely. No, that's uh, that's fantastic. Sounds like a, a really exciting project, and uh, I mean, you know, it, it raises a couple of issues, I, I guess, around uh, you know, as you mentioned, climate change, but also um, you know, some of the the globalization and social and cultural changes that are going on in you know some of these remote places yeah. in in the world, and 
you know, I mean, I'm I'm certainly very keen to see the result of this and and see 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 what happens. And um, so, when when do you, when do you think the documentary would be coming out? It obviously take a a few months after yeah after filming and everything to do all the post production, etc. So. Correct. Yeah, so it's going to take a significant amount of time. Um, we are filming in July and August. Yep. Um, and then we tentatively will go back to film in February and March because um, okay. we want to do some winter scenes as yeah. well. However, we are not locking that in until we have already been there and formed strong relationships with the people that we're working with um, because to film in winter is challenging um and it requires you to have a very strong relationship with the people that you're going with because we're going to go out hunting on the ice and it's very dangerous and um, very difficult conditions to work in so that is tentatively on the schedule for winter yeah. um well, the great thing in winter is is a real winter yes no sunlight uh well in late february the sun comes back up for a few minutes each day so we'll see that um and uh yeah so <laughs> i'll be cold <laughs> i'll be freezing i'm from south louisiana but you know uh I'll, i'm just going with it but yeah so we're hoping a release or we're hoping to submit to festivals at the end of 2023 which yep. gives us plenty of time to do all the um post-processing and cutting the film together ashley's going to be doing 99 percent of that work She's yep. the professional filmmaker, so she's going to be doing the final cut on the video. Um, so kudos to her because I know it's going to take so much time, uh, and it, it'll be submitted to film festivals for the premiere. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know it's it's definitely going to be a worthwhile thing to commit so much time and effort to. And you know, as I say, I'm re really looking forward to seeing the the, the end result. It sounds, yeah. sounds like an amazing. Uh, experience, let alone, you know, the project in behind it and the, the, the meaning. Yeah. The, um, I mean, I, I can definitely talk a little bit more about the project. Sure. Um, sure. I can talk forever about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically my entire life right now. Um, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So the, the idea actually was born from my PhD research. So um, as a researcher, I've been studying the impacts of globalization on Greenland's rural communities for about four years. Yep. And so this is something I'm just incredibly passionate about. Um, I've spent two summers in Greenland kind of getting to know the country and personally experiencing uh, just what it's like to be there. And I guess you could say just getting a feel for the place, kind of falling in love with it. Uh, and so the idea came out of my research and I reached out to Ashley to create this project. She fell in love with the idea. Um, she specializes in telling indigenous stories. Yep. So she was the perfect person to work with for a project like this. Um, and so we, we have created this entire, <laughs> it's like a little ecosystem around this film because now it's so much more than a film. Um, I'm very focused on impact, uh, so is Ashley. So it was never going to be enough for us to just create a really beautiful film. Like yep. 
that that was not really our goal. Like the film, yes, that's the shiny object. I understand that that's what the way most people will engage with this project is through the film, probably. But we also have a couple other things going on. Um, I we we have reached out to the National Museum in Greenland, and yep. we are navigating a collaboration with them the so that we can share all of our interview footage and our translations with them because the community that we're going in speaks a critically endangered language that is rarely documented um and so we will have all this incredible footage of this endangered language and it will be translated for other people to enjoy Um, most people in greenland have never heard this language yeah so that's how uh, unique it is and because it's endangered, there's a real risk in my lifetime that this language and with it, all of its cultural stories and cultural memories will disappear. So we really wanted to make sure that whatever footage we created, that it's not gonna just end up dusty on a hard drive because that yeah. seemed like a really inappropriate end for such an amazing product. Yeah. And so we reached out to, uh, Greenland, the the National Museum there and the archive, and we're going to be sharing some of the footage with them so that they can preserve it forever and make it accessible for free to the public, both in Greenland and worldwide, so that people can engage with these stories and hear uh, a language and also hear the cultural memories of a way of life that really is at risk of disappearing. Uh, that's I, I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating. And uh, I think that uh, museum piece that you're creating as well is is going to be a, a really valuable uh, yeah. resource, I guess, for, for, for the future. It's, uh, yeah, kudos to you and uh, Ash. It's, it's just going to be fantastic. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's just the nerd in me, but something about it gets me really excited about being able to go online and listen to, you know, a drum song from a community that I might, you know, most people will never meet. Most people will never have that experience, but you can hear the music and, you know, you can participate in that, that story. Definitely. Definitely. Aside from the, the the project that you you're running currently, that's obviously going to be taking up a lot of your creative uh, uh, thinking right now. What else is is it about landscapes in particular? I guess that motivates you creatively. What 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 gets you out of bed? You know, on a normal day, you know, <laughs> if there is right. such a thing. <laughs> it's hard to find a normal day, but yeah, it's. I think, I think I'm like many other photographers in that what gets you excited about photography evolves over time. Yeah. Um, and we all kind of take different directions with that, but I think many of us have that experience where we really grow and develop and mature with our creative vision over time. So, you know, a lot of people start off with emulation, right? You photograph what you see yep. on Instagram, right? These grand landscapes with blazing sunrises and you you know the ones (laughs) everybody knows what i'm talking about these really just um very vibrant eye-catching they do well on social media and they get a lot of likes and that's great i mean there's nothing wrong with that type of photography i still shoot it sometimes because how could you not but i i have slowly over the last two years or so really pivoted 
um, my style of photography uh, towards I'm now I'm more interested in this, the conservation story that's in the landscape. So if you were to go to my website, you'll see that my galleries are based around environmental themes. So I talk about Arctic coastal fog and I'll have a whole project about what Arctic coastal fog looks like and what it means uh, in terms of climate change. I talk about sand dunes, desertification. There's uh, a whole host of things that I discuss that's embedded in my gallery. So when you look at pictures, it's more than a picture, it's a story and you can engage with the story and kind of walk away with a better understanding of what a place is really about. Yeah. So kind of creating that it, I guess there's a phrase that I use a lot, which is I look at the, the pieces that make the whole. So when I look at a landscape and I'm really interested in it, sure, maybe I'll use a wide lens and photograph a grand landscape. I mean, definitely I'll do that. Um, but I often now will gravitate towards a zoom lens and break down the landscape into its individual pieces that interest me. So I try and break it down into what I think are like the key elements that make this particular place I'm photographing unique and special. Yep. And I try and photograph really a, an array of those elements so that I have a more cohesive story at the end of it to put together so that when hopefully if you look at a collection of images, you have more of a sense of place or like a, a sense of what an environment is like rather than looking at pretty pictures. Yeah, right. Yeah. So in, in that respect, I guess, are you trying to uh be artistic in creating that experience or is it more towards the experiential end of the spectrum you know you've got the journalistic here's it here's a shot here's what was there here's the light that was there through to something that's more artistically you know whether it you, you're getting into more editing and you know mm -hmm. concerts and those sorts of things where in that spectrum i guess do you do you see yourself fitting Right. Yeah. I, well, okay. There's actually two ways to answer this question. The first is like the simple approach, which is I, I really shoot natural landscapes. So I don't do editing. I almost never use Photoshop if I can avoid it. <laughs> um, I don't do a lot of color modification or structurally alter my images. If I do, like I say that that's what I'm doing. Um, but generally I, I don't, so no need to, no need for a disclaimer because I just don't really do that. Um, you know, it, I admire many photos that do it though, so that's not a, a critique. Oh yeah, yeah, I, 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 I'm exactly the same. I don't think there's anything wrong with either end of that. It, it's, it's just not where my passion. More about you know, the, and the question is more about what 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 is it about your work that you you prefer? Do you you know? Do you, where, right. whereabouts on the spectrum do you, do, do you like to sit, I guess, you know? Yeah, I just try and keep it pretty simple. Um, but I think the other part of answering that question is like, where do I feel like I am in terms of like the photojournalistic style? Um, and I think that that's something I'm still struggling with, um, especially because I'm trying to tell stories with my images. And I found that it's really challenging to do that with landscape photography versus um, wildlife photography, which is very easy to create an empathetic response about a conservation sure. story. 
same with people. Um, photographing people is much easier to create a storyline that people can relate to and connect with. Um, yep. With landscapes, I have not perfected this yet. I'm still working on it actively and, and actively thinking about how do I create stronger stories out of landscapes because it, it is a bit more difficult to get people to connect with them. So yeah. as, as aside from, oh, it's a, it's a pretty landscape or a pretty view, yeah. Right. Or, or to, how do I, how do you tell a story of water erosion yeah. in a set of still photos that are still beautiful? Because I like to shoot beautiful photos. I don't shoot journalistic style photos. I shoot yeah. traditional landscape, um, want to hang it on your wall pictures. And how do you tell a complex story when you're photographing a be beautiful parts of a landscape? It's a difficult balance to strike. I don't know if I'm there yet, yeah. <laughs> but I'm trying to figure it out. No, that's great. That's great. I guess in doing that, um, you know, do you find that you're looking for something that's uh, a, a concept that's fully formed in your mind before you go into the field, or are you going into the field and developing that concept as you as you see the, the the scenes in front of you? It's actually it's so funny. I have a, a webinar coming up in March where I talk about this about discovering hidden places. All right, um, I haven't I haven't seen your notes, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I talk about how there's two methods of doing this. Uh, and the first one is intentionality. And yep. the other one is what I call creative surprise. Um, so with intentionality, you are going to a place with the purpose of looking for something that might be overlooked. Um, and you can do this anywhere. I mean, you could go to Zabriskie Point in Death Valley, one of the most photographed places ever, and still be intentional about finding a unique story that hasn't been told yet in that yep. landscape. So, you know, you, you can take that intentionality and that mindset of like hunting for a specific story or just hunting for any story uh, with you. But then the other side of it is the creative surprise. And I think that comes down to mindset. So, you just have to be willing to be surprised. Um, the best surprise I had was pretty recent. I had a girlfriend's weekend uh, down at a local state park. I mean, it was totally mundane. <laughs> you know, we were just drinking and having a good time. <laughs> and we, uh, you know, something just caught my eye and that was it for the weekend. My poor friend had to deal with me wielding my camera for the rest of the weekend. <laughs> Because I just, I, I had an open mind about something that inspired me and I saw something that caught my eye and that was it. And I was willing to pursue that line of thought. You have to be curious and, yep. but it's not just enough to be curious. You have no. to be curious and you have to be willing to follow it yeah. uh, and like ask questions and pursue it, not just wonder about something and walk away. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a really important point. Uh, you know, it's, it's that pursuit that really gets you to the point where you're actually uh, you're starting to use that intentionality, I guess, where you're saying, mm -hmm. okay, well, that's that that's something really worth uh, worth taking a shot of, you know. Yeah. And uh, you know that that's I, I guess some sometimes the hardest part. How do you, how do you deal with 
that time, those times when you you're out there in the field and you just everything you look at, you kind of get nah, it just doesn't work. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't work. I mean, I think there's different approaches to it. You know, uh, you know, I believe I'm a firm believer that there's no such thing as bad light. You can get great pictures any time of day. You can get great pictures in any condition. They're always out there. You just have to shoot for what's available. Yep. But sometimes just personally for you, if, if it's not doing it for you, man, like kick back and enjoy the sunset. And I've gotten really good in the last couple of years of just enjoying sunsets. I almost never photograph them anymore uh, if I'm by myself. I mean, if I'm with a work, workshop group, that's different. But sure. if I am just out with myself shooting, more often than not, I just enjoy the sunset and I don't shoot. It would have to be something pretty exceptional. But that's intentional on my part. Like, I want to just enjoy that moment and relax and just kind of take it in. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's that's something that a lot of photographers kind of forget about sometimes, that, you know, they they go out there, they've got the camera with them, and you know they're more intent on the shot than enjoying the moment and oh gosh <laughs> i've i've gotten better at that i mean i think that a lot of people struggle with that at the beginning i, I, I know i do yeah <laughs> you photograph everything well okay there's two sides of it the first side is that god i've learned that i just don't want to go through those many that many pictures <laughs> like I don't. Yeah, the I'm editing process is uh, is always a big turn off, isn't it? <laughs> There's too many pictures. I can't do it. Um, but then the other part is that you're not actually experiencing what you're what you're doing. I mean, yeah. sometimes you can, right? Like you're having such a good time photographing that that's the way you want to experience the moment. And I have that too. That's amazing when you when you experience a moment through your camera. That's beautiful. Yep. But that's not always the case. There have been many uphill climbs that I have carried my camera and lugged it all the way up there. And I never took it out of a bag because I was just having fun. And, you know, you have to you have to know when it's time to just have fun, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's that, that's a, a really important lesson. Yeah. In terms of, you know, the, the too many shots, uh, I've got a friend who uh, he does motorsport photography. Um, mm -hmm. And he's he's recently just got himself one of the uh, new Canon R3s, which is I think thirty frames a second. So he's I think he's just uh, started to realise the uh, the problems of having something that shoots that many shots that fast. <laughs> you got to be light with that shutter. You got to watch it. <laughs> yeah, just uh, way too many uh, way too many shots to uh, to edit. When you uh, are in the field and um you know you've got the camera out you've found your you you, you found your composition etc what's going through your mind as you're you know setting up and is it all about the settings or is it all about the composition is it a combination of both or do you do you have a fixed process that you go through <laughs> well first off if i get really excited about a picture i'm like <laughs> I'm uncontrollable. <laughs> my 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 boyfriend loves to tell a story about this one time that we were backcountry in Death Valley. I mean, like really far from pavement, and uh, we were driving down this four wheel drive road, 
and he was driving i was in the passenger seat and i looked over and i saw the full moon rising between some joshua trees on a hill but we weren't in the right position i knew i had to be closer to get everything to line up i got out of that car while it was still driving i said stop and i, I literally like was out of that car i ran I ran across this field to go get this photo because I've I was got a excited. vision of you jumping over cactus plants, etc. I mean, look, I was a full on pole vaulting across this field because I, I was excited. It's what I wanted to do when I have that vision and I have a moment that just clicks in my head. Boy, I am gone. I, I am. That is what I'm doing. Nothing else in the world exists. I'm so laser focused on it. Um, in terms of whether I'm worried about composition or setting, I worry most about composition, but that's a luxury of shooting a lot. And yep. if you shoot so much, you don't have to worry a lot about settings because it becomes very intuitive. I always shoot on manual and I kind of know exactly where my sweet spots are and yep. I really don't think about it. It kind of is second nature, yeah. which is which is nice. When you're shooting by yourself, you, you don't want to be thinking about things like that. Um, you know because you're just trying to get the shot that you're envisioning you want it to just be automatic you know what settings to put your camera on it gets a little more complex when you're trying to do long exposures but even that um if you shoot a lot of long exposures it gets really intuitive yeah it just Again, you know you know your sweet spots if you're using filters you know what filter and, and what okay. settings behind it yeah. you know i I teach a lot of um, waterfall workshops because I live pretty close to the Blue Ridge Mountains. And so I'm constantly teaching waterfall workshops. And I understand that not a, people don't always have the opportunity to shoot long exposures often. Yeah. Um, so you, I end up with a lot of people who maybe have never even done it before or don't really understand how ND filters work. And that's okay. Like You don't have to know. That's what I'm there for. I'm there to help you. But I always tell people that if you just practice, it becomes so intuitive. Like I can look at a particular waterfall and know exactly what shutter speed, you know, what is the sweet spot for the effect I'm going for. But it's because I do it all the time. And so practice, practice, practice and just repetition. Um, and then it's not just enough to do it. You have to be a critic of yourself. Look at your photos, look at your settings in Lightroom and while I don't like the, the way this came out, check your settings. Maybe you can learn something from the yeah. mistakes that you're making to critique yourself and evolve into a better photographer. Definitely, definitely. Do you think uh, where you live has a strong influence on what you shoot or is it because you travel around so much for, for workshops, et cetera, that you, you, you know, you've been able to, just very much vary your, uh, your your portfolio. Um, you know, I can see that it would have a role for a lot a lot of people. Actually, I think it creates a, a big advantage uh, for people that live in particularly scenic places. For example, here in the U.S., if you live in Colorado or Utah, I mean, yeah. you've got a leg up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, fantastic world class photos are right. You know, just a short drive away. I have never lived somewhere like that. I, yeah. I grew up in South Louisiana. I lived in a terribly flat uh, place in Georgia that was just peanut farms. Um, I lived on the coast in Virginia, which is plain beaches, no coastal images to have there. It's just sand and water. So there's really 
not a lot of photography happening. And then same thing in Pensacola, Florida. So I have not lived in places that fostered a lot of photographic creativity. I've had to force myself to learn and enjoy photographing these places that I've lived. Um, so for me, it has been just going and getting it. I mean, you just have to go be willing to adventure. When I first started out, I lived on the road for over a year. Uh, literally, I lived in my car and I had a tent and I slept in the tent or my car for over a year. And I just that's what I did, you know, because I knew if I wanted to take photography seriously, you have to build a portfolio. Yep. Well, to build a portfolio, you have to be there for the seasons. Yep. You know, the flowers only bloom one week a year. Well, there's no replica for not being there. Like you have to physically be there. If you are not physically there, you will not get the shot. It's just, you just have to put in the time. I mean, I sacrificed everything. I mean, I literally, I was broke. I mean, completely, I was so broke. Uh, literally dirt bagging, living in my car, showering at truck stops. I can't even tell you how many times I've washed my hair in rest stop sinks and like personally <laughs> alarmed entire families on vacation. <laughs> Let me tell you, the little, the automatic hand dryers are really good hair dryers. You just sit under them and I've gotten like nice blowout from that, you know? Yeah, well, I, I don't have that problem. <laughs> yeah, you improvise. Let me tell you, yeah, that's you, you improvise when that's, but that's what I did um, because I wanted to take it seriously. I knew that I had to build a portfolio, so and I wanted to do it in a short period of time. Sure. Right. I didn't. I didn't have a backup plan. I had no other plan. This was my plan, and I didn't give myself another option. And because of that, I had to succeed in a short period of time. And it was like being in a pressure cooker. And I mean, I don't know how I pour, pulled a decent portfolio out of that experience, because when I look back, I'm like, wow, I didn't really know a lot about photography. I mean, I was crash course learning it, doing everything wrong, you know, reading a photography for beginners guidebook. Literally, I'm not even joking. Like, that's what I read. Um, <laughs> you know, I got it on Amazon and uh, I was just going for it, trying to figure it out. But wow. somehow it happened. <laughs> What, what do you think you learned about yourself and the world in that time? I learned that people are good when you give them a chance. I know that you're probably thinking that I would learn something about photography, but instead no, no, no. I, it, it, I'm, I'm more interested in the personal growth and the. Yeah, I, I learned more about people because when you don't have a lot and you're relying a lot on the kindness of strangers, which I did, you know, I was often using couch surfing, um, which is, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but couch surfing is a web platform to match you with a host. It's, it's like Airbnb, but it's free. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I, I've used it for like eight years now. Um, and I like it. Vet your host. If you're thinking about doing it, make sure <laughs> they have good references. That's all I'm saying. Make sure that you have, references for your host but you know i relied on the kindness of strangers a lot you know to make that year happen and learning that to not be so afraid of other people people are usually good and kind when you need help and if you approach with humility and you ask for help people will mostly stop what they're doing to help you most of the time and that also is probably because i'm a, a young female but 
I still think that it's true to some extent, regardless of your situation, if you approach people with humility. And there were times that I did need it, like, you know, having a tire blowout and needing a ride into town and then needing a ride back to my car and having to have someone else transport a tire for me. Um, I fractured my foot in the Grand Canyon um, and I had to drive myself with a fractured foot to a hospital. I I didn't have anywhere to sleep that night. And the doctor who put my foot in a boot, you know, invited me into his family's home. I lived with them for a couple of days. They fed me because they weren't going to let me sleep in my car with a booted foot. You know, I mean, there were kind people at every turn along the road that have made me less afraid to do what I do because now I, I have more faith in humanity. Oh, that's fantastic. That's Trust me, that faith that faith is rocked almost on a daily basis. <laughs> I just try not to do that. Yeah. Um, I guess. Do you have a favorite place where you like to shoot? Is it is it the waterfalls, or is it somewhere else that you sort of keep being drawn back to? You know, I think here in the U.S. Um, oh, it's so hard. My my favorite national park would have to be Death Valley because there's just um, it's so much more than just gravel, which is what yeah. most people <laughs> see when they just cruise through it at 50 miles an hour. You know, it's this dry, arid landscape. Who would want to hang out here? And I'm like, wow, it's amazing. If you leave the pavement and go put in the time, there are so many uh, hidden layers to that landscape that there are places that I still have never seen. And I can assure you, I've put in the time to find as many as I could, but I'm still hunting. Um, I would say non-national park in the U.S. would have to be the Southern Blue Ridge Mountains. Yep. Um, it's a hidden gem. Not enough people know about this amazing place that's like right, you know, on the East Coast. And you don't have to go to Smoky Mountains National Park. You don't have to. I mean, there are places that are, in my opinion, better that are not part of the national park. And you could go hike on trails that you will never see another person. Um, it's just incredibly diverse and there's waterfalls all around you at any moment of time. There's, I mean, there's waterfalls everywhere. It's incredible. Um, internationally it has to be Greenland. It has to be, I mean, I, my favorite subject to photograph is ice. Um, because ice can be so many colors. It, it reflects so much about itself and the landscape. Uh, it can be in these fantastic shapes and forms that are impossible to find anywhere else in nature. And it also, it's always changing. I could take a photograph of one iceberg, come back in an hour and it's different. You know, these things change so quickly. It makes for very dynamic shooting. Um, and for that reason, I love to photograph ice. Yeah. You you mentioned these trails with nobody on them. I know that there's a lot of stories around, you know, some of the the more iconic places in Utah, Colorado, and and you know Pacific Northwest, etc., where you know you're actually queuing to you know <laughs> take a shot. How much do you do you think that uh, you know social media is to blame for that popularity or you know, and, you know, people not geotagging and, you know, now because, you know, 
places are getting so crowded and you know, in some I mean, cases disrespected in you can't you can't win i mean because if you geotag then places get destroyed if you don't geotag you're gatekeeping if you don't geotag you people are going to find it anyway because they're going to use google earth so it really doesn't oh, matter and it's irrelevant so the only way to the place is never post it but then how do i do my job that's right I mean, it's a losing battle. I mean, I think the popularity of specific locations, many of them is directly related to social media. Yeah. Um, but I think people also need to be able to experience the beauty that our world has to offer. So the answer probably comes back to stronger conservation plans in popular locations. Um, mm -hmm. Nobody likes to limit access, but at a certain point, sometimes you have to. Like, for example, Angel's Landing in Utah. It's a very popular trail. Uh, it's if you're unfamiliar with it, it, it has that super like narrow section at the top that you have to pull yourself up on chains and there's no safety freaking precautions anywhere, which is mind blowing to me. Um, I have done it six times. I don't know what's wrong with me. I just, I keep going with friends and they want to do it. So I keep doing it. And it's, it has been the last two times that I did it. I had such traumatic experiences that the last time I turned around and quit because there was no safety regulations whatsoever. It's extremely dangerous trail. The drop off is enormous. And the day that we went there was ice and there were people up there in converses with no grip on the bottom. Like you're basically in house slippers climbing up an icicle with a 2000 foot drop. And it's like, I saw a guy slip in front of me bad enough that people started screaming and I stopped. I was done. I turned around. I was out of there. I just wasn't going to watch someone die that day, but now they've instituted, um, uh, some type of ticketing procedure i haven't gone since and i don't think i'll ever go again to be honest because that experience was so difficult to even watch or be a part of and you know that when you're seeing it you identify it as a problem and then you realize immediately that you're part of the problem it's like when you're in traffic and you're getting mad at traffic but you are the traffic you're in, like you're in the traffic so you're part of it yeah <laughs> <laughs> so I just I don't want to be a part of that problem anymore. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I guess you you mentioned the the, the safety aspect there. I mean, I'm uh, I, I shoot a lot of um, uh, sunrise shots on uh, rock shelves, you know, um, flowing water and that sort of thing. And you know, one of the things that I always talk to people about, and I've mentioned it on the podcast a few times, is if you're going to do something like that make sure you have the right equipment you know i've got a a, yeah. a pair of uh cleated uh, neoprene boots so they're kind of like a you know the surfer's booty but with mm -hmm. uh, cleats at the bottom so that they've got grip on the rocks you know and wow i want you to send me the link for that i want to oh definitely it. yeah they're, they're, they're actually they're everywhere here in australia there's a lot of, there's a big uh um uh, very popular pastime is rock fishing and so you can go to pretty much any camping or fishing store and 
pick up a, a set of cleated booties to uh, oh, to wear while you're uh, you're out on a on a rock shelf. And um, yeah. but even with that, you know, there's uh, I mean, there are still people, uh, you know, p- particularly rock fishermen. I haven't heard too many photographers, but I've heard of um, quite a few rock fishermen getting uh, getting swept off rocks. Um, there was actually a recent one only only a few weeks ago where a, a father and son uh, were both swept off, and uh, luckily the son was uh, rescued, but uh, unfortunately the the father was not. So you know it can be really dangerous out there, and I guess that safety aspect is something that you know I I really like to stress, and you know I oh. I don't think it gets talked about as much as it should in well, photography. Let's talk about it. Yeah. I mean. Uh, you're hitting on one of my greatest fears, which is some client becoming injured on one of my workshops. Yeah. Because you're correct that this is not talked about enough, and it should be because um, I am asked frequently, well, how do I get started? How, how do I get started? And I mean, ask questions. That's great. Like, I'm here to help you. I'm a resource. Reach out to me. I'll answer yeah. them. But like, people don't realize that you can start a successful workshop company, but people could be hurt and you cannot go into this endeavor lightly because people are trusting you with their physical safety. I mean, especially teaching in the Blue Ridge Mountains, we are in waterfalls, streams. I mean, and we go to some pretty difficult to reach places. Like if someone slipped and broke an ankle out there, I mean, we would have a crisis on our hands. I mean, I think about this constantly about what I would do in a situation like that. You have to be so prepared to think about it. Um, yeah, I, I, I think particularly if you if you are running workshops, you've got to have a plan. You know, you've got to have, okay, if something goes wrong, what are we going to do and who's going to do what, you know? I don't think people think seriously or long enough about it. I, um, I had an experience not last year with someone who was not my client, but we were out hiking. Um, and, you know, they had a really, they had a really bad fall. We maybe shouldn't have been on the trail that we were on after rain, but I had never been on this trail. I didn't know really any better about how uh, precarious it could be if you continue on. Yep. And it, it got very muddy very quickly. Um, and all of a sudden with a massive, drop off on the side and um just right in front of me his feet went out from under him and he immediately rolled off that edge he dropped about 60 feet oh wow Um, yeah and i mean 60 feet before impacting i mean that's it was substantial and um it was terrifying he is an older gentleman i was immediately convinced that he was dead you know i i i was it was quite scary i mean I dropped my gear. I first you gotta assess can I get down there <laughs> without hurting myself because then that's no good. Um, you know, climbed down there. I was thankfully with my boyfriend. We assessed his health, um, got him stationary. He had some wounds. I mean, it was very scary. He could have been seriously hurt. Um, thankfully I had a first aid kit. Thankfully, I had uh, a GPS satellite communication device which i did not have to use thankfully because he could walk out of there but like i was ready yeah i was prepared and you you have to be you have to be ready because these things could happen it could even be you like 
we're not immune to falling down. I'm the biggest klutz I know. And I think people should be more transparent about these things that Definitely. could happen. Definitely. Um, because, yeah, the more education, the safer people are going to be. Yeah. And it's not about scaring people or anything. It's just making people aware that, you know, there are risks involved in places that you go, you know? Yeah. We live in these, these bubbles, right? Like we live in climate controlled houses with our, you know, your, your next meal is only a door dash away. You know, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. If you need something, you never have to leave your house. You can get your groceries delivered, Amazon will deliver, your food will deliver. I mean, we can live on our couch and have Netflix. And we forget that the world we live in is not built for our safety. So when you wander outside that door, this is a world where many of the things in it are designed to hurt you. <laughs> well, I mean, it, make, it makes going to Greenland to somewhere where you've got to hunt seals for food, so, you know, all that real, you know. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I've never done anything like the project we're about to embark on. I mean, I've been to Greenland, I've interacted with some of these communities, but like physically being around for a hunt, which I know can be dangerous or, you know, participating in any of these activities, I'm going to learn a lot. It's, we have to have a plan (laughs) and insurance. And insurance. (laughs) Absolutely. Insurance. I think that's. Uh, I was talking to uh, one of one of the guests on my podcast earlier, uh, who has actually gone through the process of not just the insurance, but uh, full travel um, sort of guide accreditation with uh, mm-hmm. one of the, the, the states, the state governments here, and the processes that you actually have to go through to get that accreditation, including you know your safety plans, you know on top of the COVID plans that every business has to have now, you know the safety plans, the insurance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know all of the paperwork that's involved in doing that. You know, and I think a lot of people, you know, just sort of shrug that stuff off and go, "Yeah, well, I'm not going to need it." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, until you do. Yeah, that's it. Until you do. Yeah. So I guess what uh, what what are the key things that you focus on in terms of um, your environmental, you know, work and your, your when when you're looking at the environment, what are the what are the key things that you're really I guess thinking about in terms of telling your your environmental stories. So, I mean, sometimes I have an idea of a theme that I'm interested in before I go, right? So from going to Greenland, of course, you know, ice melt, glacier retreat, permafrost thawing, like these are all things that I know exist so I can go pursue those stories. Sometimes I go somewhere and, for example, I've mentioned the Blue Ridge Mountains. Let's just stick with that one. So if you go there, it's lush. The Southern Blue Ridge Mountains, it's a rainforest. I mean, it's incredible. Moss, trees, everything just looks like it's thriving. I mean, it's hard to imagine that there is an environmental issue in a place like this because it just feels so healthy. So it's not obvious all the time. And sometimes it comes down to research. I'm a huge nerd. I'm a researcher by trade. (laughs) So I'm going to go down the Google rabbit hole, beyond the Google rabbit hole into the scientific journals and read actually about the issues that are affecting these areas so that I can understand them better. Because 
by me understanding them, I can better represent them through my photos. It's not always obvious. Um, like in the Blue Ridge Mountains, they're dealing with agricultural runoff problems that is causing changes to the water. And water is what makes this whole place run. And because of that, some of the endemic species there are having difficulty thriving. Um, and, you know, that is something that is a hidden effect that's not obvious. And it's hard to know unless you actually take the time and invest the time and follow your questions beyond your lens and actually do a little bit of research on your own. And I'm not talking about like I did my research on Facebook. Okay, guys, we're going to hey, hey. do a little actual research. <laughs> move, move away from the conspiracy theories, please. <laughs> yes, it's not hard to find a peer-reviewed publication. I promise they're out there. Google, Google Scholar exists. A lot of people don't realize that. Google you know. Scholar is real. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it makes a real difference when you when you're reading one of those peer-reviewed uh, publications compared to uh, some of the gumps that you see floating around other parts of the, the internet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what tips have you got for somebody that's interested in starting out, and mm. you know, they're at the beginning of their landscape for, for, photography journey? try to find a local camera club and they're not all good okay like not every community is going to have a vibrant local camera club with a supportive group of people to help you but i think you'll be surprised and uh my first thing to say is don't discount the fact that most of these local camera clubs are retirees that's just true because those are the people with the time to yep. invest in local social communities these that that is generally who is going to be participating in these groups but that is a wealth of knowledge and a community of support that will help you learn if you're trying to learn some of the basics in photography and it will also give you a space to experiment and get feedback and that is really invaluable it's a great stepping stone for validating your own knowledge before you try to branch out into something professional like you can have some of your knowledge validated right there where people you know affirm in your community that you might know what you're talking about or that you've mastered a certain skill or that you can teach in your camera club and everyone can benefit and you build up your skills in that way um in terms of taking the show on the road <laughs> then man try to find a good mentor um I didn't. I didn't know to even look for one. I didn't know where to look for one. And when I realized I probably needed one, I was too afraid to ask. Yeah, yeah. I was too afraid to ask people to mentor me. I was too afraid to ask questions um, because I thought that I wasn't important enough. And like, I can tell you that don't be intimidated by somebody's follower count on social media. They're real people too. And I mean, if they won't give you the time of day, then maybe they're not worth it either. But most people that I know in the photography community are welcoming and yep. they will help you if you approach them in the right way. And the right way is not, hey, do you want to collab? No, they don't want to collab with you. Okay, <laughs> stop asking that. <laughs> but come with a thoughtful question, engage with them first so they know who you are. Like when i first started to when i realized i needed to network i engaged in a very thoughtful 
intentional uh, effort to build up my presence in the community by engaging on other people's social media. Comment on their post. Let them know who you are. They'll recognize your name if you're active. Share their images. Engage before you ever ask for something. Show that you're invested and that you're not just trying to suck some life out of them because nobody in this industry has free time. None of us. None of us have free time. We are all incredibly busy. So invest your time and people will invest it back in you. That's my best advice. Um, and people can come to me too. Like I will do my best to give you the best advice that I can. I answer all of my DMs. Like I will respond to you. I will try to help you. If I can't help you, I will point you in the right direction because most of us are willing to give the time. You just have to show that, you know, you're, you're not just trying to take our time that you're trying to add something. To Absolutely. It. Yeah. No, I think that that's really, really great advice. What sort of things do you like to do when you're not out shooting or doing your, uh, your admin? <laughs> Is there um, any time beyond that? <laughs> I just, I can only laugh. I, I don't have much of a life right now. Um, I wish that I had a really good answer for you. I don't. Um, maybe the reality of my life at this point in time is that I'm balancing so much that I'm working about 14 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah, yeah. And I maybe try and take it one day off a month. Things get different when I'm working in the field because you kind of have forcible fun time, whether you yeah. like it or not, because you're you're out there. Yeah. Wow. You know, that makes me feel really bad about myself. Grant, <laughs> that I don't have a great answer. <laughs> no, that's that's okay. Not not everybody does. And then and Yeah. yeah my work life balance is terrible. I'm the last person to give advice on that. I mean my my personal relationships suffer for it. You know, I, I have terrible work life balance, but Part of that, it's a blessing and a curse because when I am focused on something, nothing else exists. Yeah. Whether it's taking a photo or working on a presentation or teaching a class or focusing on my Greenland project, nothing else exists when I'm working on that. It is the sole focus in my life. And because of that, I can move mountains, which is yeah. great. I mean, yeah. if you're looking for a doer, I'm a doer. I can get things done. But, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I I've got to say, though, I, I think that happens in everyone's career where you get all consumed by the career and you forget about life outside of it for a while. You know, I know, I, I know I've, I've done that in the past myself, you know, and, you know, the thing, things do suffer. And, you know, sometimes then you have to get that correction and go, oops. I've tilted the balance a bit too far that way. I need to yeah. lean You know, it's funny because um, this actually connects to an issue that I've, 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 it has, it is clear to me that my lack of work-life balance is a problem, right? So the first step is admitting it. Hi, yeah. I'm Taylor. <laughs> I have a problem with work-life balance. Nice to meet you. Um, but I think really like a, a moment that it hit me pretty hard was when I was talking to my boyfriends and I was like, man, you know, I really want to ride the Trans-Siberian Railroad one day. Like, it's just a thing that has been, I just wanted to do it for a really long time. I just want to do it. I don't know why I decided I want to do it. That's it. 
Um, and I just was like, man, I, I wish I could go do that. I just don't have time. And it, I realized that that's exactly what people say who work corporate jobs. Like yep. that's why they don't take the vacation or why they don't go on a, yep. oh, you know, I would, but it's just, not a good, <laughs> it's just not a good time. And, you know, I used to be the person who would like yell at those, those answers. Like there's no such thing as a good time. It's about your priorities. You make the time for the things that are priorities to you, which is true, yeah. completely Absolutely. true. If it's important enough, you will make the time and you will do it. So I, I have found myself in that predicament lately where I'm like trying to figure out how to balance these things a little bit better. So I don't fall into the same cycle that I ran away from. Yep. No, definitely. Definitely. So are there any photographers out there you think I need to uh, be talking to? Who, who, oh, who, should I, who should I get on the podcast? <laughs> yeah. got, I mean, I've already got a very long list, but I like adding to it. <laughs> I will add to your list. I mean, I would be an idiot to not suggest my partner, Ashley Payne. She, if you're, she's not a landscape photographer, but it's really nice to get an alternative perspective especially if you want to talk to somebody who's very focused on um, impact or projects with a, a, a strong cause behind them. She, she has been all over this planet covering stories from a photojournalistic perspective and creating films that have real impact. And I think that that's something that a lot of photographers are in search of, right? Beyond the pretty picture, looking for an impact. And she can speak to that like no one else I know. Um, I would also recommend two people from my Mute Workshops team. Uh, Wayne Suggs, okay. who has the privilege and honor of being one of the best humans I know on this planet. Um, he is just amazing. But he also has this incredibly distinctive style of astrophotography that he has perfected over the years. I have never met someone so dedicated to the pursuit of a single photo. I mean, I have had the privilege and horror of shooting with him at night several times. <laughs> and boy, these are long events because he is so dedicated to his craft. I, I do not have the level of intensity that he has. So he, um, he can really speak to creating something unique that when you see that photo, it you immediately know it's his photo. I mean, it's instantaneous. Yeah, I've, seen, I've seen some of Wayne's work, yeah. Is, uh... Yeah. He's fabulous. Um, and the other person is Michael Strickland. Okay. Uh, that's for all your printing nerds, which I aspire to be one day. Um, he is a, a master printer. Um, I can't even speak to the mad scientist things that he does with carbon transfers and earth pigments. I mean, it's really incredible. Um, and he could really give you a serious breakdown on what it's like to create something like that. Fantastic. I'll, uh, I'll definitely have uh, all three of those on the list. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I've had a wonderful time. Uh, we probably should wrap up. I've only got one question, and for many it's the, the most important question that we've got. Okay. Do you like pineapple on pizza? Yes. I'm a pineapple on pizza girl. You can, <laughs> you can, you can hate me if you want, but I'm standing by it. Yeah, good on you. <laughs> I don't care what hate comes our, our way. It's, I, I think it's really important to get to the bottom of that question. It's a very divisive subject. So I know. you're brave to bring it up. <laughs> 
I know. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me today, Taylor. I've really enjoyed uh, catching up with you and finding out a little bit more about you and in particular hearing about your project. Um, aside from, uh, you know, obviously we'll put uh, the Kickstarter uh, link into the show notes, etc. Where can people find your work? Yeah, you can uh, find it on my website. I post some on Instagram as well. I'm kind of across all the platforms, but the key to finding it is whether or not you can spell my name right. So it's it's a constant problem. Uh, it's T-A-L-O-R. There's no Y in it, and I have no explanation for that. <laughs> you don't need one. <laughs> you don't need one. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much, uh, Taylor. It's been, uh, been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate your time too. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to Landscape Photography World. I hope you enjoyed the show. And keep listening because I'll be joined by some great guests in upcoming episodes. You can find my work in this podcast at grantswinburnphotography.com. I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. I'm Grant Swinburne. Hope to see you out shooting soon. Mm -hmm.